environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, This is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. So today's guest is Lowell Wise. Lowell is a scholar of modern American literature and the environment with special interests in place, travel and environmental justice. He holds a PhD in English from Loyola University, Chicago, and a master's in English from Wichita State University. His book, Eco-Spatiality, A Place-Based Approach to American Literature, was published by University of Iowa Press in 2021. Lowell also serves as book review editor of the Steinbeck Review and as the liaison between ASLI and the Rocky Mountain Modern Language Association. Originally from the Maumee Watershed in southern Michigan, he now makes his home in Washington's Puyallup Watershed, where he now works as assistant director for the Tacoma Tree Foundation. So hello, Lowell, and thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, very excited, very excited. Great. So... Um, as ever, we start with our root words, and inspired by Lowell's book, Eco-Spatiality, today's root word is landscape. So nowadays, this is the most common way to refer to, refer to a place or an area of land as a desert landscape or a mountainous landscape, a degraded landscape or a flooded landscape. And we also use it figuratively to refer to cultural or political landscapes. But despite this now very generalized usage, the word started life as a technical term for painters, describing, as the Oxford English Dictionary puts it, a picture representing natural inland scenery. So the Oxford English Dictionary seems to still know what natural means, even if no one in the environmental humanities does. And um, the scape part of the word landscape comes from the same old Germanic root as shape, and so it originally meant to create or to fashion. So landscape then is a deeply aesthetic term. It implies that the land is an object that is being seen or represented from a particular point of view, whether that be a painter's viewfinder or a lookout point in, in a national park. It's a word of relationality, conceiving of the land in relation to the viewer. Um, so with all that in mind, Lowell, can you give our listeners a brief overview of your book um, and explain to people what you're trying to do with this term, eco-spatiality? My book, Eco-Spatiality, is an effort to bring together the fields of eco-criticism and geocriticism and to think about how place operates in literature. I work with this term, eco-spatiality, because it sort of brings together these concepts that are often distinct in our ways of thinking, like ecology or environmental thinking, and then spatiality or geographical thinking. And for me, when we think about how place functions, we can't have place without both of those things. It's about spatial relationships. It's about the ecology of a place or the, the biological world. And then it's also about human relationships and our history and the way that our stories constitute place. So this kind of idea of place as a container for all of human history is, is also part of what I try to capture in the book. So I'm trying to 
with this term ecospatiality, I'm bringing together a couple of fields that haven't talked to each other that much, but have a lot of things in common. And I stake out a framework, a critical framework that's, I, I call a place-based approach to literature using some of the tools from geocriticism and using some of the tools from eco-criticism to try to think about a comprehensive approach to place in literature. And um, I guess I can give a couple examples here. Um, for me, eco-spatiality relates to this feeling that I get when I'm maybe in an airplane or on top of a mountain and I'm looking down on the landscape. And it's a way that my previous understanding of the world from maps, from stories, comes to merge with what I'm seeing from above. So it's also a little bit like the Google mapping platform or Google Street View, where you can sort of merge. And now these platforms have merged the photograph satellite images with the, the geography or the mapping images. And that's how I think about ecospatiality. It's these two lenses coming together that we're using to view place and to interpret literature. Awesome. So um, you mentioned geocriticism there a couple of times. Can you explain that concept a little bit more? Because I think a lot of our listeners are really familiar with eco-criticism, um, but maybe less so with the idea of geocriticism. I think this is one of the, this is what I envision as my contribution to eco-criticism. It's bringing some of this methodology from geocriticism into our interpretations of literature. Geocriticism is relatively new. It comes from the literary theory of Bertrand Westfall. And in the United States, Robert Talley, who has translated Westfall's work from French and um, who edits a series on uh, spatial approaches to literature. But geocriticism really starts from this idea of the spaces of literature. It's the idea that, that kind of idea of a world inside the text, a world of literature that we feel a part of when we're reading. So you can think of a classic example like Lord of the Rings that creates a, a world that people feel immersive or people feel is immersive and also has kind of a mapping function. And for me, it's that mapping function of literature that became really interesting. The mapping function of literature is what geocriticism is invested in primarily. There's this term from geocriticism called literary cartography. And literary cartography has to do with this idea of how literature maps places and spaces. And to some extent, eco-criticism has been doing this for a long time by paying attention to specific places, sites in the world, uh, specific stories that are tied to places. And geocriticism is bringing us some tools that can help us with a more sort of rigorous approach, I guess, to understanding places. Let me put this does in it have to Does yeah. it have to do perhaps with um, coming back to this notion of relationality again? Because you, you kind of said like eco-criticism has paid a lot of attention to spaces and places, but um, what you're saying with this um, kind of cartography idea, obviously a map gives you places in relation to each other. 
So is it kind of taking that that broader view and and kind of thinking about places that like you can't physically be in these several places at once, but you can kind of imagine them and imagine how they how they relate to each other and how they shape each other and how the kind of position of them creates pathways or obstructions through a landscape is that absolutely kind of to do with it yeah it has to do with the relationship of places with each other it has to do with an orientation of the reader in the text and an orientation of the reader in the world which i i see as very connected the way that we go through the world and think about where we are or sometimes don't think about where we are and what that means that's a reading experience as well when you're going through a world that an author creates. And geocriticism focuses a lot on this way of representation. They think about place as representation. And that's what cartography, this image of cartography does for us, is it puts the emphasis on how authors are creating places deliberately and adding detail that orient readers to the spaces of the text. So that way of thinking may be a little different from what eco-criticism has often done. And I think there's a term that I don't use very often in this book, which is sense of place. And if you think about that term, what that used to mean, uh, or does mean in many cases still for people, having a sense of place um, can sometimes be romanticized. It can mean feeling connected or a certain spiritual connection with a place. And I think what geocriticism does is turns that on its head a little bit and makes us think about how it's actually functioning. So I started to think about the different functions of place as having a nature element, a spatial element, and a story element. That history was related, and especially environmental history, could be related to the spaces in the text. Interesting. So I'm wondering, maybe could you give us... Um, like a specific example of a text and how you are applying this thing, um, both in terms of, of your eco-spatiality, um, but maybe also just as, as kind of a, a more concrete example of the, the geocritical um, part of that eco-spatiality. Sure. One of the things that the geocritic, geocritical theorist Bertrand Westfall talks about is multifocalization and this insistence that geocriticism is a really comparative project. So Westfall says we read to understand places and we achieve that reading by talking about multiple places at uh, multiple representations of that place. And so for Westfall, we have many, uh, we need many representations of a place in order to understand it better. So, one of the chapters in the book is about the region of central New Mexico. And in that chapter, I talk about Leslie Marmon Silco's ceremony, um, Ana Castillo's So Far From God, and Willa Cather's Death Comes From the Archbishop. Now, these are three 20th century novels that are all focused on the same place. And I talk about how the cultural perspectives of these authors results in a map of the place that's really different. Well, the individual maps of these authors is very different because of their cultural perspectives and the time in which they're writing. But what I do in the chapter 
is bring these three together to think about a collective representation of New Mexico and Hmm. what sort of results, what insights result when we perceive a place from multiple angles or multiple perspectives. And that I think is essential to the geocritical approach. It's not just having kind of a monolithic one person view on a place, but it's trying to gather as many perspectives as possible. So if we think about Silco's character, Tayo, in Ceremony, Tayo is going through a traumatic experience and recovery process. And part of that process is an orientation. And it's a spatial orientation as well as a cultural orientation. Tayo makes sense of his experiences as a war veteran, as a, a biracial Laguna Pueblo man, And he makes sense of it by going through this um, travel experience, essentially, um, where Silco gives us specific sites and place references. And then um, we sort of come to a new cultural understanding through Tayo's own experience of orienting in the landscape. But then we have these characters from the other novels that do that to different degrees and in different ways. And yet a lot of the place references sort of overlap. So we have something like U.S. Highway 66, famous Route 66, runs straight through central New Mexico, and it shows up in all of these stories. And so we have this image, I guess, of characters and places that are sort of layered on top of each other. And what I'm talking about in the chapter, what I'm arguing is that we have a better understanding of New Mexico when we think of it from these different perspectives accounting for the different environmental histories, the different cultural perspectives, the kind of um, Chicana experience that Castillo talks about, the white settler experience that Cather is privileging by talking about um, the era of conquest of the Spanish and also the, of the Americans in central New Mexico. And so all those layers become equally important and sort of resonate with each other. Cool. Yeah. I, I feel like when you're talking about multiplying perspectives, it kind of reminded me a bit about earlier when you were saying it's a it's a feeling that you associate with kind of being in a plane or or looking on Google Maps, and you know this is kind of a a like technological way of of seeing things in a way that we wouldn't be able to see in our own body, and I guess literature is kind of doing that as well in a very different way. It's kind of uh, giving us this completely different perspective. Um, so I'm interested to ask, like, how how did you get interested in this stuff? Like, how how does this kind of um, where do, where does it come from? This kind of very particular um, approach to reading. Well, first of all, I love reading maps, and I love traveling through the world and thinking about where I am. And one of the reasons that I read is that I like experiencing other places where I've never been before. So as I was going through my graduate studies and thinking about what kind of topic could hold my attention for a long time, I started thinking about not just nature and literature and all of learning about eco-criticism, but then also this idea of the literature mapping function that I was talking about. So I got um, really interested in this idea of how literature is like a map. It's invested in representation. 
it has kind of this orienting function. And um, so, yeah, that's where it really came out with. But another inspiration for this project is the nonfiction of William Least Heat Moon, and especially the book Prairie Earth, which is uh, subtitled A Deep Map. And it's a book from the early 90s in which the author attempted to enter and describe a place that most people didn't care about or most people dismissed. So he, he took it as a sort of personal challenge to write a place book about someplace that was not usually talked about. And I became really interested in this idea of the deep map, this metaphor of literary cartography. And then I wanted to investigate further Heat Moon's idea of how he wanted to represent a place or how is a place represented in literature. And what he found out from that experience is that a place, he, he takes a single county in Kansas and he walks every single foot of the county, essentially. He interviews hundreds of people. He goes into the archives and digs up all these old stories. And what he finds is that the place is actually very rich in history. And um, so a place that outwardly looks empty is actually full of stories and full of resonances. And so this book, Prairie Earth, came to represent that idea for me, that places are sort of like archives that contain these stories. And it's up to us to sort of excavate those stories. And I guess as literary critics to um, look at more stories of places rather than just the single story that comes down from an author, perhaps. That's one of the other inspirations for the book. Great. I'm uh, I'm curious what uh, what Gemma mentioned, like Google Maps, and you had mentioned earlier Google Maps. Um, I, I know uh, um, there have been people who kind of take, they almost create like a a, a Google Map or a Google um, pathway almost of uh, different novels or different sites. Or I know people have done like James Joyce's Dublin, or you know, and they'll map all of these different places and landmarks and stuff that he speaks about in his novels. Or um, I've seen people do similar things for um, uh, New Orleans and, and mapping kind of these different locations mentioned in, in um, texts about New Orleans and stuff like that. Is there a relationship between that kind of of um, use of technology in some ways where we're kind of, we're, we're starting from, from the text and we're saying, okay, let's look where actually all these things are, are in like literal relationship to each other. Um, does that kind of, of, of enhance or, um, help visualize any of the things that, that you're doing with these authors in terms of how you're taking their multiple perspectives, but then mapping them onto a, a real location. Cause I know in your introduction, you talk about um, a lot of what you're doing is real world locations, right? You mentioned Lord of the Rings earlier. And so we're not really talking about these kind of fantasy worlds where we don't have a, a literal map. Um, well, obviously Tolkien made maps of his areas, but like we don't have like a Google <laughs> earth that we can search for um, middle earth. Um, maybe has someone yes. made one? That yes. would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there's, I bet there's one out there, but um, um, you know, is, so I, I guess, you know, is there a relationship between this technology that we now have access to and this work that you're doing um, that we can, we can literally look at these places. Um, you know, I can be sitting here in central Kansas and I can, look at a map, a Google Earth map of Dublin having never been there before 
and you know, kind of get a, a better picture of what that space looks like. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I, part of my process for researching this book was having a Google browser open almost all the time as I was reading <laughs> Native Sun, like Richard Wright's Chicago, which goes down to individual intersections in Chicago and gives you a street-level view of Chicago in the 1930s. Um, but I also think that's sort of a metaphor for how I think about reading when I'm just reading a novel. Like authors are always representing places and putting them in relationship to each other. So when we take that extra step of plotting it on Google maps, for example, um, or even just make sense of it in our own heads as kind of an orienting function, I think that we're doing what I'm talking about in this book, which is engaging in that place-based orientation and the authors that I find most compelling often are the ones who are talking about place in this kind of rigorous way, or they're examining characters' relationships with the places where they are. So I'm not too much of a, a technology uh, person, or actually, I thought about having, you know, what would be the function of sort of plotting out each chapter and creating my own literary map or my own literary geography of the novel. And I ultimately rejected that idea, partly because I am not trained in GIS. But I also think that it's, um, it's a potentially really good teaching tool to have students engaging in, um, in this kind of geographical, to have students engaging in this project of geography because it does create different connections. There's actually a, a, a project that a professor created, and I'm forgetting his name. There's a project that maps Leslie Marmon Silko's ceremony in this GIS way and was created as an interface for students. So I actually think that the ubiquity of mapping programs is another reason to keep reading in this way. And even if you're just doing it in a kind of cursory way, to explore a place that's being talked about in literature, it can give you a different sense, a different perspective on the story itself. And part of my argument in the book is that understanding places better will help us understand the characters better, help us understand the, the story better. Hmm. And have you, have you taught any of this stuff? Have you like got students to draw maps or anything? I have. For a few years, I was teaching students in... Lima, Peru. And I would teach this novel by Ana Castillo, So Far From God, that is about the middle portion of the Rio Grande River and where it passes through rural areas just to the south of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And in one of the units, I actually started with a very zoomed-in version of Google Earth. And it was zoomed in on the town the town of Tome, which is central in the text. And I asked students to do a reading of what they saw on the screen. Uh, what can they understand about the landscape, what type of place it might be, just from the details they saw on the, on the satellite image. And then I would do a process of gradually zooming out. And the reason I did that is because it was about situating the story in a place that they could understand, you know, giving a little bit of graphic detail for students, and then giving a sense of scale and a regional geography. So in the case of So Far From God, 
it's an agricultural valley that appears green on Google Earth. But as you zoom out, the only green space is this corridor of the Rio Grande River. And you come to realize that the only reason these villages exist is that it's been irrigated for centuries by these Mexican-American communities. And so we then can connect to the colonial history where the Spanish came up the Rio Grande Valley and started settlements there in the 1700s. And then thinking about the story so far from God, which is about seven generations of Chicana families who were uh, originally Spanish settlers, became Mexican citizens when the border changed, and became American citizens when the United States occupied that territory. So using Google Earth helped me to explain that story to my students um, in a way that just reading the novel wouldn't have allowed them to understand. I'm, I'm curious, um, maybe thinking about just like some of the, I don't want to call them limitations, but when you were, when you were saying like, so this is a novel that, um, you know, there's several generations of families. And so I think one of the, one of the really cool things about what you're doing is how it, it does allow us to kind of literally visualize that space in ways that we have never been able to do before with stuff like Google earth. Um, but obviously Google earth is giving us a snapshot of a very recent, what that space looks like. And so I'm curious, um, you know, do, do you, are you also looking at like older historical maps of a space? Are you making comparisons between those? Cause you know, one, uh, you know, 50 years ago, uh, any location is going to look probably pretty different than what it is right now. And so thinking about that generational way, um, and you mentioned earlier, you know, how, how history plays into this, um, idea of, of, um, that sense of place, I think. Um, are, are you looking at those others? Would you encourage others to, you know, look at kind of historical maps and stuff as well? If they're thinking about teaching them or, you know, doing this kind of work, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the the unit I was just describing would work really well on, with using a series of historical maps of New Mexico, for example. Using maps was central to my process and finding maps about... Um, Maps of these places from previous times was a really important part of my research. I was really interested in the question originally of whether authors were using maps when they wrote their stories. I saw a reference to John Steinbeck, how he had consulted maps of California when he was writing East of Eden. I could never find a confirmation of that, but for a while I was obsessed with trying to figure out whether Steinbeck used maps. And then I realized that wasn't as important to me as having access to those maps myself and sort of comparing them to the literary cartography of the author. But um, another example is in my chapter on Native Son in Chicago, I learned so much about the specific history that Richard Wright was talking about by looking at these Depression-era maps of Chicago and where the African-American population was located. And because of racial discrimination and segregation because of redlining. The black population was confined to a very narrow strip of Southside Chicago that was known as the Black Belt. And visualizing that on a historical map was very powerful and helped me understand the story that Richard Wright was telling. By telling a a story of a character who committed a crime, but was examining this idea that the environment made him do it, that the, the young juvenile delinquent, Bigger Thomas, 
was under so much pressure as a young black man in the black belt being so confined that he acted out in a certain way. And that was essential to Richard Wright's story that he was telling, but it's based on a real environmental history of discrimination and segregation in Southside Chicago. So reading those maps opened my eyes to a new understanding of place and a new understanding of that novel. Yeah. And I, I, um, I think um, as you were talking there, it, it also made me think of there could be some really unique ways to still, I know you haven't done work with like fantasy and um, you know, fictional worlds, but I know with a lot of fantasy authors, um, you know, somewhere in the dust jacket or in those first few pages, they often will include a map of that space. And so that's just really interesting. You know, they want to orient us to this world in some way. Um, and so I think that would be an interesting either, you know, future project for you or for someone to kind of take your work and build on that is to look at, you know, um, ask that same question. Are these, are these authors who are creating these fictional worlds, what kind of mapping are they doing ahead of time? even to situate themselves within this world as they're creating it. Um, I think that would be a really cool um, question to ask. Absolutely. And there's this uh, amazing photo of Richard Wright, actually from the early 1940s, where he's sort of perched on top of these maps of Southside Chicago, because he was so interested in it from a sociological perspective um, that he, he's quoted in this the definitive psych, uh, sociological study of Southside Chicago in the 1940s. Um, and so I play with that image of the author sort of on top of the map and uh, what that means. Richard Wright also walked the streets of Southside Chicago and wrote about it for the Federal Writers Project, which mm-hmm. I found really interesting. So he had this kind of street level understanding that he then conveyed in the novel Native Son. But I think what you were trying to get at something about authors and how they are, I don't know, the connection with fantasy authors. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah. Well, no, it's just, I I think I was just, it it wasn't even necessarily a question. It was just something that kind of popped into my head. I think that would be interesting for further exploration is, you know, authors who literally can't walk the streets of, you know, whatever setting they're creating because it doesn't literally exist. Um, but it would be curious how many of them start from a map, right? They actually map this world first before they do any kind of writing, um, just so they have some kind of, uh, again, I, I think going back to what Gemma said earlier, this idea of relationships, right? Like knowing what towns are next to each other, knowing where the rivers are, where the forests are, um, all of that stuff might, you know, in many ways will influence what kinds of things happen in those locations around that. And so having that awareness as a writer, um, it's just, I, it would just be interesting to know where, um, in their process they're, you know, they're creating these maps if, if they are at all. Mm. Yeah. I wonder whether, um, so I think we're kind of coming towards the end of our main interview time, but I want to kind of round up with, with, um, a more general question, uh, zooming out a little bit to use a Google maps <laughs> kind of metaphor. Um, so like in your previous answer, you were talking a little bit about um, like these social justice issues that are, were coming out of that reading of the work. And I, and I wonder kind of more broadly, how does this notion of eco-spatiality relate to ethics in terms of, you know, the, the kind of environmental challenges that we're facing now and the kind of social and cultural ramifications that they have? 
This is a really important question. And I talk about this in the conclusion of the book, having kind of an ethical orientation. For me, the more I understood place and the more I started to read about how place operates, the more I was convinced that there's a kind of obligation to create the kind of places that we want to see in the world. And for me, that's a more just kind of place, a more um, sustainable kind of place. One thing that I've realized is that place is always political and that place is always developing. We're always creating places whether we like it or not. And so the question is, what kind of place do we want to be creating? But what I also found in reading literature and reading novels like the ones I'm talking about in the book is that when we use the lens of place to approach a book, we have to start asking questions about environmental history and how places relate to each other, how places develop over time. We have to ask ourselves those questions, and that often points in the direction of whose history is being told, which stories are not being captured, and then what kind of work needs to be done in, in order that um, those stories can be recognized and understood. How, how should we let history influence our understanding of our relationship to places in the world? So in the case of Native Son, I found that Richard Wright was using these spatial references in his text to ground readers in the south side of Chicago. And then that became a way of understanding segregation as an environmental justice issue. So the novel talks about how housing was dilapidated and not only were African-Americans being concentrated into a certain box on the map, but the condition of the housing was creating public health disaster. So it's an environmental justice issue as much as it is kind of a spatial awareness issue. And that's what I found in many of the books that I was reading, that authors were interested in the human-environment relationship, but that that also kind of gave them an imperative or, or creates an imperative for us as readers maybe to think about the places that we're creating and our role in society, our place in history, you know, our place in deep time, however you want to put it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a a really, really great sentiment to kind of wrap things up on. So uh, let's move on to uh, ending on a roll. So I've got a 12 sided die here. I'm going to give it a toss and whatever number comes up, that's what question I will uh, ask you. So it is number nine. Um, <coughs> number nine, if you could only recommend one thing to someone starting out in the environmental humanities, what would that be? So it could be a book that you think they should check out. It could be just a piece of advice for them. Um, just, you know, some, some, some gr- good advice for, for our, our young listeners here. Young and not young. You can be just getting into the environmental young, humanities yeah, young, and be not young. Young in, in, I meant in, in the broadest sense. In a metaphorical sense. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. We'll let that go then. <laughs> I would recommend students read some of the work of William Cronin, the environmental historian, and especially Trouble with Wilderness. This is kind of a classic text of environmental humanities because it introduces a lot of key concepts and it is invested in this kind of takedown of environmental rhetoric and the the ways that 
places are not sort of static. So when I read that essay, it challenged how I thought about national parks, for example, as um, sort of pristine wilderness spaces, right? Um, turns out there's a long environmental history of those places that involves displacement of Native Americans, involves a certain type of land management. And so for me, that essay is great. I also heard Cronin speak one time in Tacoma and um, his his understanding of his presentation on different watersheds and um, environmental histories was great. But maybe we should move to a different question. <laughs> No, that's all good. Oh, we just yeah, have one of them, but we'll we'll make sure that we get the title of the essay in the show notes so people yeah. can look it up easily if they want to. Cool. Um, so thank you so much. That was a wonderful conversation. Um, how can listeners find out more about you and your work? Do you have any social media, website, anything like that? I'm on Twitter at LowellDW, and that's basically it. <laughs> you can also find it. Um, some of my work at Tacoma Tree Foundation, which is on Instagram and Facebook too. Sweet. And obviously we'll also have a link to uh, where people can find your book uh, in the show notes as well. So uh, make sure you, you check that out, everybody. Um, I got through the introduction. I'll, I'll admit I didn't get through the whole thing, but um, it, it's it's fascinating. I, I'm I'm already thinking of ways that, that I can um, apply some of this stuff, both in my teaching and uh, in some of my own research. So yeah, it's it's really, really cool stuff. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you've got an idea for an episode, either in terms of a proposal you want to submit to us or you'd like to for us to reach out and have somebody on the episode, you can get a hold of us at our uh, Gmail, asley.ecocast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, asley underscore ecocast. And uh, there's a, a link a link tree there on the top of our, our Twitter feed now that has uh, where you can find the podcast as well as the, the form submission there to submit your proposals. Yeah, and if you have enjoyed the show, please help us reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we are, of course, always open to your feedback on any of the episodes. So thank you so much, and until next time. Bye.